Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. If you're new, my name is Adam. Welcome to First Free Church. Thanks for being here with us today or online, as so many of you are still right now. But it's just great to see the auditorium filling up as much as we can with social distancing as well. We're really glad you're here. And we are in the last couple weeks now of our study of the book of Colossians. So if you are new, that's your, your sneak peek of what we're going to be looking at today. Open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. And we're, we're wrapping it up today. We're in the last chapter now. We're starting to wrap it up rather. We've got a couple more weeks after this. And we've been saying all along that Colossians is a rumble strip letter. It's not a letter written to a church that's gone off the rails and they need to be pulled back into the right place. This is a letter written to keep a good local church in a good place, on track, make sure that they stay on the right path. And if you think back over the last few months, since we've started going through this, we've seen example after example of how staying on the right path and being focused on Jesus and being rooted in Christ is supposed to look in our everyday lives. It's a very practical letter, a letter designed to take the theological and make it really applicable in our lives. And so Paul has given lots of examples of that. We've seen that in the church relationships. He talks about that and the unity and the love that the church is supposed to have for each other that transcends so many differences we might experience. We've also seen that in the family relationships. If we talked about marriage relationships and parenting, we've seen that most recently in the workplace relationships and how Jesus should make a difference in our lives, even at work. And in this last chapter, what Paul is going to do is he's going to start by sharing some of his final thoughts on teaching. And then he's going to go into this long section of greetings. We're going to cover the teaching parts today. So really, this is Paul's conclusion to his whole argument. Everything he's been teaching is going to get kind of wrapped up today. And then he kind of gives this little PS of all these greetings to different people and notes about different individuals. And that's what we'll cover over the next couple of weeks. So the question we're going to explore today in the de facto closing of the teaching section of Colossians is what is the outcome of all of this? Where is all of this leading? Okay, Paul, we've gotten all this great information about how the Christians should live their life. What's sort of the aim of this, the goal of this? What are we trying to do with this? What's the result of a Christian who is staying on the right path? and rooted in Christ, and focused on Jesus. And basically what Paul is going to tell us is, don't keep it to yourself. This should be something that is attractive to other people. When you live this way, people are going to want to know what's different about you. And so this isn't something that you should just sort of retreat into a monastery and live amongst yourselves and and huddle around with other people in your sanctified bubble. This is something that other people are going to want to have, and you should be ready to share with them. That's where we're going today. Before we get there, there's just something else that I want to touch on briefly because we're going to pray now. And as we pray for the message time and we pray that God gives us wisdom, we also want to acknowledge the fact that this is a very challenging time in our country right now. And there's a lot of conflicting information out there. There's a lot of conflicting opinions out there, whether you get on uh, traditional media or social media or wherever you're getting your information, your news. There are different sets of facts that people are working with and very different opinions about what's happening in in our capital and uh, in our White House and how the political landscape is kind of being shaken up right now. Just, Just this morning, I was reading more news about more new events that are taking place and getting emails from people, maybe some of you here or or watching online right now. And I'll tell you, sometimes I open an email and I think I know where it's going, and then it takes a completely different turn. I go, whoa, that is not what I expected. And so I can tell you that we have a lot of different thoughts and opinions about the political landscape um, and the, the conflicts happening in our country right now. And those are things that we need to care about and we need to have um, 
good and, and open conversations with each other about. But at the end of the day, we also have to remember what ultimately goes over all of that, what is more important than all of that, which is our relationship with Jesus Christ and our bond together through Jesus Christ that supersedes all of the different opinions we might have about all sorts of political views and things going on. So I'm not saying not to have opinions about it, but I'm saying we have to remember what matters most. And what I wanna do for us right now is just to take some time and pray for the message, pray for believers and our response to some of the the struggling things that are happening in our nation right now, um, and also pray for our country. So I'm gonna ask you, if you would, to just bow your heads with me, whether you're in this room or watching online right now, just bow your head, close your eyes if you would, focus on God, and let's all pray together. You pray in your heart and in your mind, and I'm gonna pray as well and lead all of us in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is so troubling to see what is happening in our nation today and and to see all sorts of conflict and the polarization that seems to be worse than it's ever been. It seems to be hitting a boiling point and there's just more and more things that I'm I'm sure it's made worse by how the pandemic has conditioned all of us and and has made us less united and more separated from each other. So Lord, I pray right now that you would work through a very difficult situation and some tragedies that have happened and some poor decisions that have been made by a, a number of different people. And that you, Lord, would take this and work this out in some way for good. That you would use this as an opportunity to show people that even though they can't rely on maybe the government or political systems or people of this world or people that they thought they could rely on, that they can rely on you. That you are greater and bigger than all of this. That you are faithful and steady and that you are not going to change one day to one thing and one day to the other thing. But that they can rely on and focus on you. And Lord, as we, as we examine this passage this morning, it's all about how the Christians should live in a, in a way that non-believers are gonna see that there's a difference in their lives. They should live wisely, that they should be gracious, that they should, that should speak carefully in what they say. And so my prayer, Lord, is that for this church right here, for First Free Church and the people that call this church home, that we would be characterized by that type of lifestyle. That we would represent you well, God. And that, that your testimony would be one of graciousness and of love and of unity, even though we have different opinions. And I pray that for all believers in this country, Lord, that you would help us to not be known so much by what we're against, but what we're for, even though we may very legitimately be against certain things. And Lord, that you would help us to keep the gospel as a focal point in in our lives, in our conversations, and in what we communicate to others. Help us to represent you well, God, because ultimately we want people to point back, not to us, not back to our great speeches or our great views or our great posts online or whatever it is, but to point back to you, our Savior. Help us to learn to do that, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Colossians chapter four is where we're at. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open there to chapter four, verse two. It'll be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine, or open it up on your phone. Any of that will work. We're going to read this passage and then we're going to talk about it and explore what are these closing thoughts that Paul has for the Colossian believers. So here's verse two of Colossians four. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response 
for everyone. Have you ever been talking with someone for a while and then you start to realize that your time is coming to a close and suddenly you have this great sense of clarity around what you want to communicate to them and you try to get a lot of things out in rapid fire? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like you're talking with someone and you know you're not going to see them for a while. You've got a few minutes left and you're just trying to get everything out that you need to get out to them. Maybe it's clarification so they don't misunderstand something you said earlier. But really, I think you're great. Really, I hear all the things I love about you, you know? Or maybe it's, it's something where you've got some final instructions for them. Where it's, it's like, uh, and make sure you do this and make sure you do this and make sure you do this. Okay, bye. Or maybe it's something where you've been avoiding a certain topic of conversation the whole time, but you know you have to talk about it. And so now that you've spent 95% of your time on fluff, the last five minutes are gonna be this really important topic that you're not bringing up until the very end. But then you get it out there real quick and you, and you both have to go your separate ways. I feel like that's kind of what's going on with Paul here, just that he's getting to the end of his time to be able to communicate and he switches into bullet point mode. He just fires off some rapid fire things here that are sort of built on everything that he said before, but everything he said before kind of brings into these as the outcome and these should be included in everything he said before. He sort of summarizes it, but in like rapid fire and in bullet formation. Maybe it's because he was in jail at this time. He's chained up. Maybe he's under house arrest. We don't know for sure, but he says he's in chains. So he's chained up maybe to the floor or the wall or something like that. And maybe he has limited visiting hours or limited time to write the letters. Maybe, maybe they won't let him write letters all day long. Or, or maybe Tychicus and Onesimus, who are going to bring this letter back to the church in Colossae, could only be there a little while longer before the guards are going to say, that's it, time is up, you got to get out of here. So he quickly jots down some things and some final greetings. Or maybe he was just running out of room on the page, I don't know. But it's like he gives us some really brief instructions here at the end for what the believers ought to be doing. Some last things, he's like, oh, and make sure you do this, and make sure you do this, and make sure you do this. And he doesn't seem to develop them quite as much as he does his thoughts earlier in the letter. But the truth is these final thoughts here build on everything he said before. They should be infused into everything he said before. And so they kind of tie in with all of the earlier things. So what does he tell them? What are his last few thoughts where he's like, oh, and make sure you do this. Number one, devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. The word devote means to intensely focus on something or continue on to do something with great intensity, even though you might face difficulty. So even though there might be some obstacles in your way, some things that would cause you to not want to do this, some things that would distract you from this, be really focused on this thing. Devote yourself to this thing. Devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, the Christian's lifestyle should be characterized by prayer and being devoted to prayer, even though other things might keep us from wanting to do that. And there are lots of things that you and I can get devoted to that will keep us from a life devoted to prayer. There are all sorts of things, I probably don't even have to list them all, that we can have our lives devoted to and it just makes us not even think about the need to spend time in prayer, which is crazy because we have this connection to the God of the universe. We have this open door to walk into his presence and talk with him at any time about anything that's going on. And yet sometimes, sometimes we just don't take advantage of it. But Christians should be known by our devotion to prayer, a life that is devoted to prayer. And then Paul gives us a couple things to know what that devoted life looks like. What does it mean to be devoted to prayer? I'm going to give you three things. The first one is, is kind of a, a dual point because it's based on that word devoted, but I think it deserves a little bit more attention. And that is to be consistent in praying, to be consistent in praying. Sometimes the last thing we think to do when we're making an important decision is to pray. Have you ever noticed that? 
I don't know why that is, but I'm just as guilty of this as anyone, where I might have a decision to make, big or small, and I've, I've spent a lot of time researching it and evaluating it, and I've asked people for their advice, and I, I get online and say, what do you think about this? And then I'm still stumped, and the last thing I think to do is, oh, maybe I should pray about it. Maybe this is something I should actually like take to God and ask his opinion, you know, because he's promised to give wisdom if we ask for it. Why is that? That sometimes just in our regular lives, we don't think to stop and ask God. He wants to hear from us. He wants us to be consistent in our praying, to be faithful and devoted in our praying. Even this week, as I was getting ready for this message, there was a certain section where I was just stumped. And I have access to lots of commentaries and, and research helps. And so I did all kinds of study and I'm reading and I'm reading different opinions on things. I'm not sure where to go with this and, and really stumped. And then all of a sudden I just had this thought pop into my head out of seemingly nowhere. Maybe you should pray about it. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Isn't that just a bizarre thought that as I'm preparing a message like this, all about being devoted to prayer and I'm stumped with a particular section, I went for a good chunk of time just researching and studying and frustrated and confused and then, I, oh, maybe I should pray about it. But don't we do that with all kinds of things? Where prayer is just not something that's on our mind. But to be devoted to prayer means exactly the opposite. It means we continue in prayer, even facing great difficulty. Even when we're distracted by many different things, our life is all about prayer. And then he says to be alert in prayer, alert when praying. One translation uses the word be watchful. Be watchful when you pray. And some people have interpreted this to mean you're supposed to stay awake when you're praying. And I don't think that's a bad concept to have, that probably if you're talking to the God of the universe, it's not the most respectful thing to just fall asleep on him. It's like, were you, were you bored talking to the one who created everything that exists? Are you, are you too sleepy to keep your eyes open to talk to the one that could just snap his fingers and you're gone? Like, that seems like a pretty big deal. And yet sometimes, you know, I'll admit it, I'm in a, I'm in a prayer meeting with, with people and you're, you know, you kind of, you bow your head, which is already dangerous. And then you just form this little cradle with your hands. Do you ever do that? Maybe not every, maybe that's me. I just form a little cradle with my hands like this. And oh man, that's nice. And depending on who's praying and how many Our Fathers they throw in there, it could get really easy to just kind of slip off. And then you wake up and no, I was just praying the whole time. I was an RA um, in college and, uh, the first college I went to was a fairly conservative Bible college, um, a lot more conservative than I realized actually when I went there. And, and I applied to be an RA to get the scholarship. And so I, I made it. And one of my jobs at this really conservative Bible college was to wake people up so they would do their devos. And I didn't um, 100% agree with all of the things we had to do there, but it was what I was supposed to do or I would get in trouble. So I would have to go around to everybody in my dorm and wake them up and get them at their desk so they could do their devos. I am not at all saying that that is a good way to get people to be spiritual. That's just how this one particular place wanted to do it. And I was the one who had to go do it. So I'd wake people up. And then the second part of my job was to go do a second check and go back around about five, 10 minutes later and make sure that they were still doing it. So I have to go around. Some of you are shaking your heads like, I can't believe they would do that. I know, but I had to do it. So I went around, I got everybody up. And then about five, 10 minutes later, I'd go back around and guess what most of them looked like? Like this on their desks. And I would give them a little shake. And, hey man, yeah, you're supposed to be doing your devos. Huh? I was praying. Somehow every one of them was praying, but they had a big red mark across their forehead. So I knew they'd been praying for a long time. They were very serious about their prayer lives. 
You remember when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, what he told Peter, James, and John when he left off to go pray. What did he say? Stay awake and pray with me. And then he goes away and he comes back and what are they doing? They're sleeping. And that was offensive to him. He was hurt by that. Why could you not stay awake with me for like an hour and just pray here, guys? So I do think staying awake is is a valid part of being watchful when we pray. But I think something else is going on here too. And I think the NLT gets it right when it translates this as to be alert or have an alert mind. Do you ever find yourself going on autopilot when you pray? Like there's just certain phrases and rhythms you get into. It's like, okay, now it's time to pray for the food and now it's time to pray before bed and now it's time to pray for this. And we just sort of go through the motions. Like, have you ever gotten to the end of a prayer and if someone had asked you to repeat what you just told God, you couldn't tell them because you were just on autopilot. And I think maybe that's a little bit of of what this is too, that we shouldn't go on autopilot when we pray. We should be intentional. We should be alert. We should have thoughtful minds about what we are saying to the God of the universe. This is something we're working on in the Bowers household right now because we've gotten into some patterns and rhythms of just praying the same types of things over and over again. And now we're saying, oh, we gotta be intentional. We've gotta have intentional prayers. Think about what we're saying. Don't just say the stuff you said the last 10 times. Let's try to come up with something new, something fresh because we're really talking to God here. This is not just us doing a religious ritual. We're communicating with the God of the universe. That's a big deal. We should treat it like it's a big deal. We should be alert when we are praying. The third thing that we see from verse two here is to be thankful when praying. Be thankful when praying. Sometimes I can get into this mode where thankfulness seems like a feeling to me, like it just happens to me, you know? Because something good happens to me, I feel thankful. And when something good doesn't happen to me or something bad happens to me, I don't feel thankful. And I'm just a passive part of this process and thankfulness is just something that happens to me. But that's not how the Bible says it works. This is an imperative. It's a command. Over and over again, the Bible tells us to be thankful. In fact, the, the Bible says to be thankful in all circumstances, no matter what's going on, to always be thankful. And so thankfulness is a command. That means it's a personal responsibility. It's something that we can choose to do, that we have agency over. The enemy wants you to feel like you are a victim of your circumstances, like everything happens to you. And so maybe it's because of your your life circumstances, maybe it's because of your family, maybe it's because of a particular group of people you belong to, but it's because you are a victim and other things are happening to you, and so you feel a certain way as a result, and that justifies anything you think, say, or do, or feel. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are personally responsible, not just for our actions, but even for whether or not we have an attitude of thankfulness. An attitude of gratitude, as some people call it, if that helps you to remember it better. I had this conversation with one of my kids this week because um, there, I, don't, I, don't, I, never, I try to be careful not to be too descriptive of my kids because a couple things happen. One is they watch the services. So you just gotta be careful what you say because they're gonna bring it back up to you. And the other thing is I don't want people coming up to them and saying, ah, your dad told this embarrassing story about you. So I try to always be careful about my kids. So one of my kids who will remain nameless was not being very thankful or having an attitude of gratitude this week. And it made me think of this story. Maybe you've heard of it before called Pollyanna. Who's, who knows the story Pollyanna? Anybody? Okay. How many of you watched the old movie Pollyanna, the old Disney movie from like the 60s about Pollyanna? It's great stuff. Good story. Uh, good, good movie. Um, 
what happens is Pollyanna is this little girl who does not have a lot of money. Her dad doesn't have a lot of money. He's a missionary. He's, he's barely supported financially at all. And she really wants a doll. She doesn't get the doll and she is heartbroken. And so her dad tells her, hey, I'm gonna teach you a game. Anybody remember what the game was called? The glad game. Somebody's got it back there. Good for you. The glad game, exactly. He teaches her the glad game. What is the glad game? In every circumstance, no matter what's going on in your life, there's always something to be thankful for. You can always look for what is that thing that I can be glad about and I'm gonna focus on that instead of focusing on all the negative things, whatever is there. That's really good advice, isn't it? It reminds me of what the apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter four, when he says, hey, whatever's going on in your life, don't worry about it. Don't let your mind dwell on the anxiety of the negative thing that's happening in your life right now. Instead, he says, turn your worry into a prayer request. Don't worry about it, but pray about it. And then he says, now think about all these positive things. He gives this list of eight different things that you can think about, whatever is true and noble and pure and praiseworthy. Think on these things. Then he says, the God of peace will be with you. And that's what we all want, isn't it? We want peace. We don't want anxiety. We don't want worry. We don't want to be dwelling on the negative things. We want to be able to be thankful, but we so often think that thankfulness is about what happens to us and not about what we choose to do with our attitude. And so the Bible says that thankfulness is something we can choose to do. And Paul says, when you take those negative thoughts and you don't worry about them, but you turn them into a prayer request and then you focus your mind on positive things, you play the glad game and the God of peace will be with you. So be consistent in praying. Be alert when praying, be thankful when praying. But then that raises a question for us, which is what should we be praying for? And there are many things that we could answer with, but Paul is gonna give just one, which is this. Pray for us too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Now, when I study the Bible, one of the things that I get the most out of it is not just what it plainly says, although obviously that is helpful, but sometimes it's the insights about what is assumed. What is Paul assuming here in this passage? That's what's so most interesting, honestly, for me. The first thing is that Paul believes that God gives us opportunities to share our faith. Do you see that in there? Pray that God will give us many opportunities to speak. And so Paul believes that God actually intervenes and creates opportunities for people to share about Jesus with other people. That's something God does for us. And the second assumption that Paul makes is that the Colossian believers can actually pray and God will maybe give them more opportunities to share the gospel. So pray that God will give us many opportunities to speak about this mysterious plan concerning Christ. We've talked about that earlier in this series about the gospel and how that was a mystery in the past revealed through Christ. And Paul's saying, God creates opportunities for us and you can pray that he gives us more opportunities. That's kind of an amazing thing, isn't it? It's just sort of assumed by Paul, but I don't know if we always live that way. Some people will call these divine appointments. See, God wants to use us as his coworkers in his mission to reach the world with the gospel, to have a part in that mission. It's incredible that the God of the universe would want to use us in this at all, but he he does, and he doesn't just send us off on our own, but he actually schedules the appointments for us. Isn't that amazing? And notice that Paul here is, he's chained up. 
He says, I'm here in chains because of this message, but pray that I get more opportunities to share this message with other people. He's got all kinds of restrictions on him. He's literally chained up to the wall or the floor, and he's asking for more opportunities to share the gospel. And so my question for us today is, what's our excuse? Yes, we are more separated than probably at any point we've been in our lifetime. And we interact with people a whole lot less than we did a year ago. And yet there's Paul. He's literally chained in his house. He's not quarantining because of some virus. He's physically held to a certain location. He's saying, please pray and ask God to give me more opportunities to share about this faith with other people. So what's our excuse? And of course, we have all kinds of excuses. We get busy, we get distracted. There are lots of things that go on in our lives that would keep us from sharing with other people the awkwardness of it. It can be uncomfortable. We can be afraid. We cannot know what to say. Have you ever seen the magician's pen and teller? Do you know how I'm talking about Penn and Teller? They do some amazing uh, magic tricks, really, really cool. And Penn Gillette, who's the pen of Penn and Teller, he's a really outspoken atheist. But one day after a a show of some kind, I don't know if he was speaking or, or doing a magic show or both, what it was, but someone came up to him, a man came up to him and gave him a New Testament Bible. And this man was really gracious when he did it. He just said, I just feel like God wants you to have this. And he gave him the Bible and, and Penn took that, that Bible and he was very gracious with the man back and it really had an impact on him. It moved him so much that he later talked about this. And here's what he said about receiving this Bible. He said, and by the way, he didn't change his mind. As far as I know, he's still a, a devout atheist. But he said, if you believe there is a heaven and hell, And people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever. And you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He's got a point. I mean, if you and I have experienced this amazing difference that Jesus makes in our life that we've been talking about for months now, all these different things Colossians says that are different because of Jesus in your life, if we've experienced that, why would we not want to share that with other people? Why would we not want that for others too? And I know it's not easy. And I know it can be awkward. I know it can be uncomfortable and it's difficult. It gets more difficult the closer the person is to you, doesn't it? It's easier sometimes to share with the stranger than it is to share with someone you have a relationship with. I know. But one of the things that gives me great comfort is that it seems like it wasn't always easy for the Apostle Paul too. Because the very next thing he says is, pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Now hold up a minute. This is the Apostle Paul here. He's an evangelist. He's an apostle. He's got spiritual gifts that I don't even know about. This guy is a super Christian and he is asking these Colossian believers who he's never met, by the way, to pray for him that he would proclaim the gospel more clearly as he should. He's saying, I need help with this. I don't have this all figured out. I'm not perfect at this. I don't always do this perfectly. Sometimes I bumble my words and I don't know what to say. And I need you to pray for me that I would communicate this message clearly. And if the guy who's arguably the best at this at anyone in human history needed help, needed prayer to do this better, then I don't think we should be ashamed to need the same. We don't have to be perfect at it. We don't need, have to be amazing at it. We, we need God to help us to speak clearly. So the, the first main point was to devote yourselves to prayer. The second main point is to pray for opportunities to share our faith. And I say our faith because it's, it's 
your faith and my faith. And I know some of you are not followers of Jesus, and so maybe it's not your faith, but I'm mostly speaking to the believers today. And I'm saying we have a faith, our faith, that we need to pray for opportunities to share. And that includes opportunities for you to share, but notice that Paul is saying pray for opportunities for other people to share. When is the last time we spent time in prayer for our pastors or our missionaries to have more chances to share the gospel? And yet that is the pattern of the Apostle Paul. That's something we should be praying for. For our missionaries overseas, we have so many missionaries that we support as a church here, both in this country and in this continent and then many around the world who have opportunities to share the gospel that we will never have with people we will never meet. And according to what Paul is showing us here, we can pray that God would give them more. We should be doing that. We should pray for opportunities to share our faith. But Paul gets to this point, and it's really interesting what he does next. It almost seems unrelated, but I think it's very related. Because it's like he's thinking about the fact that, okay, pray for opportunities to share faith. And he wants the Colossian believers to also be sharing their faith. And so he shifts gears a little bit to talking about lifestyle again. Because if you are not living the right kind of life, and yet you're communicating to someone to something else, and you're a a critical person, or you're a a gossip, you're a person the neighbors don't want to be around, or you're a person who's just not very nice to people, or, or just really reclusive, or whatever it is, and you go communicate something and say, hey, I want you to change everything you believe and trust in what I believe and change your life to be like mine. If your life isn't one they want to emulate, then why do you think they'd want to buy what you're selling? Why would they want to believe the message that you have to share with them if your life does not reflect someone who they would say, yeah, I want a life like that. I want that kind of peace in my life. I want to be positive like that. I want to be able to have faith and hope and love like that and unity with other people like that. If we don't have that kind of lifestyle to offer, then when we're offering, why would people actually want to take us up on it? And so Paul says next here, live wisely among those who are not believers. See, we don't remove ourselves from non-believers, but we live wisely among them. We make wise choices. We live respectable lives around them. And notice why he says that, to make the most of every opportunity. What he's talking about is opportunities to share your faith. That's built into the context here. He's saying, pray for opportunities for us to share our faith, and then you live wisely and make the most of every opportunity to share your faith. Then he concludes with this. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Literally, the wording that he uses here is to have speech that is gracious like it is seasoned with salt. Now, I love salt. Anybody else like salt here? I'm a big fan of salt. Thank you very much. I see that hand, Kim. I love salt. Mashed potatoes with butter and pepper, and you gotta have salt. Oh, so, so good. Hash browns with salt. Amazing. You know, when, when I'm sick, and I'm not, but when I'm sick, I haven't been sick for a long time, uh, this whole thing is like killed colds and flus in our house. But when I'm sick, some French fries with salt. Oh, so good. Just soothes the throat. It's amazing. You got to try it. Uh, Natural homeopathic ancient Chinese uh, remedy. I love salt. Some people like to put salt on watermelon. How weird is that? If you like to put salt on your watermelon, I will pray for you. I will pray. I see that hand. Same person. To me, it tastes like soap. But you know what? If you like it, that's cool. That's great. What does salt do to food? It makes it tasty. It makes it appealing. It makes it attractive. The idea here is that our speech should be attractive and appealing and and interesting and engaging with other people who are not believers. So their perspective of us isn't that we're just boring fuddy-duddies who just have a bunch of rules that we don't want to do certain things and we have to dress a certain way and we live in our own communities and we're in our little sanctified bubble. 
The idea is that we're engaging with people in the, in the world, that we're engaging with non-believers, that we're showing them that Jesus wants to infiltrate everything in the world, not that we're supposed to recede from the world. Jesus wants to reclaim it. He wants to redeem it. He wants us to have conversations with people that are engaging and dynamic and interesting and gracious and polite and kind so that they would look at that and go, that's appealing. I want some of that. I want more of that salt in my life. That's the kind of communication that we are supposed to have. Not to be known as people who have loose lips or gossipy or overly critical or negative about things or take really big audacious stands that are really important to people in this world and don't ever talk about the gospel message. It should be so much a bigger deal in our life what Jesus has done for us. And when we do that, and we pray for opportunities to share the gospel with people and we live the kind of life and talk the way that people are gonna wanna engage with us, then I believe God is gonna give us more opportunities to share about Jesus with others. Peter, by the way, gives us very similar instructions in 1 Peter 3. He gives instructions for husbands and wives just like Paul did in Colossians. He says that the believers should be united and have love for each other just like Paul says in Colossians. He says, don't retaliate, don't repay evil for evil. So he gives all these commands about how to live, the best ways to live, the ways to stay on the right path. Then he says this, worship Christ as Lord of your life. So focus on Christ, be rooted in Christ, just like Colossians. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, if someone asks about your hope as a believer, now why are they gonna ask? Because of the way you're living, like he said earlier. All these things that he said before in 1 Peter chapter three, it leads up to this, all the things Paul said earlier in Colossians, it leads up to this idea that we should always be ready when someone asks about our hope as a believer to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. See, the Christian life, the transformed life, the life that's rooted in Christ and focused on Jesus and staying on the right path, if we're living that wisely, it's gonna lead to opportunities to share our faith. But we have to be ready and open to share that mysterious plan of Jesus with people too. We have to be prepared to do it. And that leads us to our final thought today, which is how do we do it? How do we share with, how do we share Jesus with people? How do we communicate the message of the gospel, the good news about what Jesus did for us? Yeah, we heard it and we believed it, but when's the last time we actually shared it with someone else in a way that would actually make sense, that would be explained clearly? What Paul is saying in Colossians chapter four to make the most of every opportunity. So as we close today, I'm gonna share with you a way to share your faith with others. And I know some of you, watching right now or in this room are not believers in Jesus. So this is just sort of a peek behind the curtain. But this is mostly for those of you who have already trusted in Jesus. How do you share your faith? Is there a formula? Is there a presentation? And the answer to that is kind of yes and no. Yes, there are many formulas and presentations. No, there is not just one that you just need to memorize that and you're good. A presentation memorized can be helpful because it makes sure that in the moment as you're talking, you don't forget what is the next thing I need to share with them. It means you don't leave something out that might be important to communicate. On the other hand, a presentation can go too far when it becomes just this thing that you've memorized and now you're on autopilot. And so there's this disconnect between what you're saying and, and the emotion that's behind what you're saying. And so it just seems like it's not genuine, like you're not actually believing what you're telling them. And I've seen this many, many times. So having a method or a formula that you've memorized, very, very helpful but don't rely on it to the point where you go on autopilot. A lot of times we have to be flexible with people. And I've told stories here before about times where I've had to adjust my plan midstream as I'm talking with someone because they bring something up and suddenly we jump from this method to a different method. So there's no one necessary right way. And I don't want that to, um, to be misunderstood here. 
All of our formulas and presentations are, are man-made things that we come up with to help us remember the core aspects of the gospel message. I'm just gonna share one with you today, but let me give you a few others that you can write down if you want to look them up later. One that's very well known as the Romans Road. I'm sure many of you have heard of that before. If you Google that, you will find what the Romans Road is. It's all the passages in Romans that will kind of walk you through why we need a savior, what God and Jesus did for us and how we can trust in him. There's another one called Steps to Peace with God. There's one called The Way of the Master that became pretty popular several years ago. There's another one, I think it's a little newer, called The Three Circle Method. Um, And that one's nice because it's a visual approach. Uh, Then there's a book called Share Jesus Without Fear, which also has an approach to evangelism in it. I highly recommend this last book here, Share Jesus Without Fear. I love it. Um, I, I don't love everything in it. There are some things that I would do differently, but there are some great things in this book about how to approach a conversation about the gospel and not be a weirdo. And let's just be honest. That's something we all need to learn, right? How can you share about your faith with someone and share that you believe in God and you believe in Jesus, you believe that he died on the cross for you without coming across as someone who's just trying to hit him over the head with a Bible. And I think Share Jesus Without Fear does a great job of that. I highly recommend that book. There are many, many other methods, but there's just one that I'm gonna share with you today, just in a few minutes here. Very, very brief uh, presentation. This is not meant to be exhaustive. You can go look this up online if you wanna dig into this more. And I'd love for you to do that. Some of, the, some of what determines what method you're gonna to use to share your faith with others is gonna be your personality or your testimony, your personal experience. So if you trusted in Jesus through a particular method, it is much more likely that you are gonna to wanna to use that method to then go share with others because it had such a difference in your life. And you know what? That's probably a good idea because that means when you communicate it, you're gonna communicate it from a place of experience and passion that maybe someone who did not trust Jesus through that approach wouldn't have. So that might be a better method for you. But let me share one that I've really come to love. It's called Bridge to Life or or the Bridge Method. It starts by explaining that God created the first human beings or God and and man. God created the first human beings and um, the Genesis 126 says, God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So God created people to be perfect, to be like him, um, to to be people that would be a part of his family. And he gave them some rules to follow. And he he doesn't give us rules to follow just because he likes giving rules. He gives us rules to follow because he made us and he knows what's best for us. And so he gives us rules to follow that if we follow, we'll lead to a better life, a more fulfilling life, a life that is filled with all kinds of great things. But when we break God's rules, we don't just break his rules. We also set ourselves up as his enemies. When we say, I don't wanna follow what you, my creator said for me to do, I wanna go my own way, I wanna think my own things, I wanna do my own things, we are setting ourselves up in opposition to God. So we're making ourselves enemies of God and God is perfect and sinless, but we are imperfect and we are sinful. That's what happens when we break God's rules, we do wrong. We become sinful, we do sinful things. So there's a separation that happens between us and God. Romans 3.23 says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Isaiah 59 says, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, those wrong things you do, those things that break God's rules, who knows what is best, he has turned away because of your sins and will not listen anymore. Now we do all sorts of things to try to get across this divide between us and God. And some people have their own idea of of what God is or who God is or that there is no God. But we do all sorts of things to try to make sure we, we live the kind of life that we think is going to be best. And a lot of us try to cross that bridge to God with all sorts of things like, can I be good enough? Can I do enough good stuff? Maybe if I can do enough good stuff to outweigh my bad stuff, then I'll get there. 
If I give enough money, if I attend church, if I do all this other stuff, maybe that will be enough to get me there. But Isaiah 64, 6 says, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. What that means is we can never be good enough. There's no good that we can do to somehow earn the right to be in God's family again, to be reconciled to him, to spend eternity with him, to have peace with him. So we are separated from God with no way to get to him and no way to rid our sinfulness. And this is where the bridge comes in. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the only way to connect with God, to have peace with God, to get rid of our sin. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And Paul says in Romans 5, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight through the blood of Christ, he's talking to people that have already trusted in Jesus here. Since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God, isn't that cool? We have friendship with God, was restored by the death of his son, Jesus dying on the cross. While we were still his enemies, separated from him, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Not the things we do, but through Jesus Christ. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. And then the the natural question that comes as a result of that is, how do you get across that bridge? Okay, so if Jesus is the bridge, how do we get across it? And the answer is simple. There is nothing you can do to somehow earn passageway. There is nothing you can do that would make you good enough to get across that bridge. You simply believe in what Jesus did for you and turn from your old sinful way of life and turn to Jesus. It's one motion. It's it's one action of the mind. It's one decision to say, I am no longer gonna follow the sinful ways that were in opposition to God. Instead, I'm gonna live for God and I'm gonna trust in Jesus and what he did for me. And I know there's nothing good that I could do to somehow make me right with God. And so I'm gonna trust in what Jesus did for me. And it's believing in Jesus and turning from your sin and trusting in what Jesus Christ did on the cross that we accept God's gift of salvation and we become a part of his family. It's all one motion. It's like this one walking across the bridge kind of moment. Jesus says in in John 5, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death to life. That's the crossing the bridge. In Acts chapter three, Peter says, now repent of your sins and turn to God. That's what repent means. Repent means to turn away from something, you turn to something else. So turn away from your sinfulness and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. That's what God does for us. In Romans 10, Paul says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. That in a nutshell is the core message of the gospel. That there's nothing we can do to earn it, that it's all on Jesus and it's trusting in him and turning from our sinfulness. That then God takes and wipes away our sin and adds us to his family and we have peace with God. And at the end, you saw in Romans chapter nine, it says to openly declare the faith that we have. And I, for many years, followed a practice called the sinner's prayer. How many of you know what the sinner's prayer is? Raise your hand if you know what the sinner's prayer is. The sinner's prayer is like a repeat after me prayer. That says, okay, you you believe this message? You wanna trust in Jesus? Okay, here's what you do. I'm gonna say the words and you just repeat after me. And I did that with many, many people. Hundreds of times I led people through the sinner's prayer. And one day, as I was about to do it again, 
I had a thought, and I think it was just the Holy Spirit prompting me in this moment. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a sinner's prayer, and I'm sure many of the people that I walked through that process with really did trust in Jesus and were absolutely genuine in what they were saying, genuine in what they were saying. But I just had this moment where I, I had a thought to have this man that I was talking to pray in his own words. And we had walked through the gospel, and I thought he understood it clearly, and he said, yes, I wanna pray, and he prayed like this. He said, dear Jesus, I believe in you. I, I want to live my life for you. I wanna be in heaven with you when I die. I just hope I can do enough good stuff to get there. And in that moment, I suddenly realized, wow, we missed something here. There was a disconnect because Titus 3, 5 says, it's not by works of righteousness. It's not by our good deeds that we can be saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says the same thing. It's, it's by faith you are saved. It's nothing you can do. And so I realized, wow, we need to spend some more time together. We spent the next hour together explaining the gospel more clearly, exactly what Paul was talking about, explaining the gospel more clearly so that he understood. And from that point on, I've never used a, a sinner's prayer when sharing the gospel with someone. And I'm not saying it's wrong to do. I'm just saying, I think it is, my advice is to ask them to pray in their own words. Invite them to pray in their own words. And sometimes you'll learn things from that. And other times it is the most amazing confirmation. When you hear someone that you've shared the gospel with and they're praying and suddenly they start praying things that are absolutely accurate and true, but that you didn't talk about, you're like, okay, they get it. They really, really get it. It is wonderful. There's no specific prayer the Bible tells us to pray. Um, it's nothing that we have to, to make them do. It's just a way to openly declare the faith that they have, as Romans 10, 9, and 10 says. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're listening to all of this, you've just gotten sort of a peek behind the curtain, okay, at what it, or what it means for us to share with someone else how Jesus makes a difference in our lives, that very first moment. And, and if you have never done that before, you can do that today. Whether you're in this room or you're watching online right now, you can follow everything I just said. And if you believe all of that, and if you will tell God today, hey, God, I want you to come into my life and I know that I'm a sinner and there's nothing good I can do to be right with you and I want you to transform my life and Jesus, I believe in you and what you did for me on the cross, then God's word says when you do that, you become a part of his family and you have peace with God. But for those of you that have already done that, you can do exactly what I just shared with people that you know who do not know Jesus. And don't be weird about it. But listen, if, if this is something that's made a difference in our lives, then it should make a difference in our conversations. If this is something that we truly believe in and we see how Jesus has transformed our life as we've been talking about through this whole letter in Colossians, then don't keep it to yourself. Share it with other people as it, as it makes sense. Be open about your faith at work, at school, as you go about your life. Don't be afraid to look for those opportunities and pray for those opportunities to proclaim clearly that mysterious plan that God had through Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and how it just continues to hit us on the head with really important reminders. Things that I would bet probably most of the people in this room and watch online have heard before, probably nothing completely new today. And yet, God, I'll bet we're not all living it out like we should. I certainly am not. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have those opportunities. I pray for everyone in this room and watched online right now that you would give us opportunities to share our faith with other people. I pray for our missionaries who are overseas right now, God, that you would give them more opportunities to share their faith, to share your gospel message. 
And if there's anyone here who does not know you as Savior, Lord, work in their heart today. Help them to trust in you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.